Welcome to the Beauty Doc Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Joel Kopelman, a cosmetic oculoplastic surgeon in New York City. You're going to hear from interesting guests who are authorities in their specialty. We will cover topics on health, beauty, and cosmetic surgery, and you will receive unfiltered, truthful information about all these procedures. Rhinoplasty, or as the public says, nose jobs, is one of the most sought-after cosmetic procedures in the United States. Currently, there are 18,000 searches a month for rhinoplasty. It's my pleasure to introduce my guest today, Dr. Matthew White, who is nationally and internationally recognized as a a uh, facial plastic surgeon who is uh, in practice in New York City. He is board certified by the American Board of Otolaryngology, the American Board of Facial Plastic Surgeons, and he was trained at Harvard in otolaryngology and went on to do two fellowships at the uh, first at the Wellman Laser Research Lab, followed by a fellowship at uh, NYU in facial plastic surgery. So it's a great pleasure for me to talk to him today. I want to learn as much as I can about rhinoplasty so we can convey the truth about what rhinoplasty is all about and offer you uh, good information so you folks out there can make a good decision about uh, when and, and where to have the rhinoplasty done. Thank you, Dr. Kopelman, so much. It's a pleasure to be on this podcast with you, and I certainly uh, appreciate the invite. So let's start out with motivating factors that prompt people to go and want their nose changed. We see a lot of patients, especially in New York City, that have concerns about the way that their nose looks. Um, I would say the most common time that we see patients is, uh, you know, in their late teens or early adolescence that they um, just are starting to uh, become aware of their self-appearance and would like a little little boost in that regard. And then, you know, we certainly see older patients as well. Uh, sometimes uh, people have in injuries in youth or have uh, problems with difficulty breathing and uh, they're caught up with the uh, excitement of life and all the demands of life and the, they get to a point in, in their uh, in their older age, maybe in their 40s or 50s, and they just want to address how, how their nose appears. And so, um, but we certainly see a lot of it. So this brings up two questions immediately to me. One is, what age is appropriate to start thinking about a rhinoplasty? I, I assume there's a lower limit uh, in which you would not uh, recommend the rhinoplasty. So when you think about the nose, uh, the septum of the nose is, is sort of a dividing wall that runs right down the middle of the nose. And the cells that you will that are developing the face um, it's, it's a center for craniofacial growth. And so you imagine this is the center part of the nose is like mission control with how the, the remainder of the face is going to develop. And so we don't want to, you know, intervene on someone too early. And so we like them to sort of be completed with growth. And so it's usually age 16 or older. Some of the questions that we ask uh, during the initial consultation are, you know, are you still growing? Are your shoe sizes still the same? Um, you know, how have you changed in the past year? And so we usually like for patients to be completed with their growth uh, before we undertake on surgery of the nose. 
That's very interesting. So do you think that the social media, the kids are carrying around the, their phones, taking pictures all day long, do you think that's actually boosted the interest in, in rhinoplasty in terms of people saying, um, gee, I don't look good on my profile, I got to go get my nose fixed immediately by, by Dr. White? <laughs> I, I think there's no question that that's true. I think, uh, you know, social media and uh, the different ways of viewing ourselves online has certainly increased awareness. And uh, I don't know whether it's actually a factor that people are actually looking at themselves more or whether uh, there's, there's, a, there's a questionable secondary gain there with trying to look better. Uh, for their online profile, but there's no question that data from uh, the American Academy of Facial Plastic Surgery, we've seen a large uptick in the number of rhinoplasties uh, that that uh, have happened with the emergence of social media. Fascinating. So if a male or a female comes to you, do you have a, a different kind of approach to that young person who's a male or female in terms of the way you envision their their nose to be? Yes, we do. And um, I think what we try uh, to achieve with rhinoplasty is uh, we want to enhance their look, but we don't want to lose their identity. You know, years ago in rhinoplasty, uh, there were a handful of surgeons, you know, in New York City and on Long Island. And, uh, you know, they had the Dr. X nose. Right. And you could immediately see if you were in the mall or at a movie theater, uh, absolutely who'd had surgery with Dr. X. And thankfully, we've went away from that. And, uh, you know, what I try to do is spend time with patients and really try to understand what type of look they're, they're trying to achieve. Um, but we don't want to lose, you know, their natural features kind of thing. We don't want them to look like they've had plastic surgery. Um, ethnicity is important. You know, does my nose look like mom or dad's or the rest of my family kind of thing? What's my skin thickness? Uh, you know, so we really want to keep all that. And thankfully I hear that from patients as well. Patients, uh, People always ask me, you know, does everybody come in and want Jennifer Lopez's nose or, you know, some other actor's nose, you know, Mm -hmm. Brad Pitt or something like that. And actually they don't. Most people do want to look like themselves, at least in my practice. And I think that's a good thing. I think people should really celebrate their uniqueness and individuality. And, and so what we try to do is we look at pictures together and, and we have morphine software that can sort of help predict what they might look like after surgery and that way I can get really get a good understanding what a, what a patient is looking for my question about the morphing morphing computerized imagery before surgery is my hesitation in terms of my thought process is are we raising the expectation of the patient too high in terms of what they're going to ultimately uh, end up with because there are factors, of course, you can't totally control for. Oh, yes, no question. And so I, I have a nice discussion with patients that they know that the morphine is make-believe. You know, it's not reality. Uh, unfortunately, I can't design on a computer and, uh, you know, 3D print a nose for them. Um, but it, it really helps the discussion because it helps to a little, uh, illustrate 
really what features they're trying to uh, really target. You know, is, is it a hump on the, on the dorsum or the profile of the nose? You know, is it uh, a tip that they feel is too wide for their face? Is it the rotation of the nose? And so we can sort of approach that. And I think part of it is also on the responsibility of the physician and surgeon. Uh, for example, I see a lot of patients that have had, you know, a very crooked nose from all their life where it was a previous sports injury. And we're always very cautious to uh, temper their expectations in that, you know, a lot of times it's hard to make a nose perfectly straight after it's been you know, crooked for many, many years after a trauma. And so when we do the morphing with, with the patient, we show them, you know, sort of hopefully what a range of expectations could be. I see. So you don't always tell them the, the most ideal scenario. Exactly. You, you, bring it, you bring them back yes. to reality. It's not photo editing. It's yeah. more, um, it, it's really a good tool to have a really nice discussion with patients to really uncover really what they're looking for. What special techniques have you um, feel have changed the way you approach a nose? Do you do do you have to have versatility in terms of a closed or open approach? Can you kind of define for me what that means? Sure, sure. Um, so a closed approach is essentially we can modify the nose simply by going inside the nostrils. In other words, you don't have any external scar whatsoever. Um, it, it, there's some good data that shows that a, that a closed approach or what we call another name for it is an endonasal approach. Um, patients have a little bit less swelling, um, but sometimes it's more advantageous if there are a lot of things that you want to try to address to do what's called an open approach. And so um, if you, uh, the structure uh, right between your nostrils is called the cayumella. So that little bit of tissue in between your nostrils, um, we can make a small uh, three to four millimeter incision that's very hard to see afterwards. It heals very well. Uh, but with that approach, we can uh, really open up the nose and visualize the cartilages of the tip. If you have a very deviated nose where the nasal bones and the cartilage are very deviated, it's a little bit more of an accurate way to really address uh, some of the patient concerns. And so I do both approaches. Um, I was trained in both. And um, uh, there are some surgeons out there that will only do one approach or the other. Uh, but I think both are effective given the right patient. So when would you use a closed approach? I assume that's a less complicated yes. uh, nasal reconstruction. A closed approach would be a situation where a patient had sort of very minimal concerns. For example, they didn't like the hump of their nose. And so I can make an incision on the inside and address it. Um, but a patient that maybe wanted to address the rotation of their nose, maybe the alignment of their nose, maybe some irregularities of the tip, I find it's much more accurate to do an open approach. And, you know, usually after a week, the, the difference in swelling is negligible. Um, the scar is very hard to see. 
Um, and it, and it's, I, I think it's equally uh, as effective. Do you think your, your training in ENT, otolaryngology, has given you a different perspective about how to approach a nose versus other specialties like plastic, general plastic surgeons who do rhinoplasty as well? Do you think your otolaryngology background gives you a different kind of slant on uh, with no pun intended, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, on how uh, to approach the nose. Do you, in other words, do you do you take take into account, for instance, more functional aspects of breathing than, say, the the general plastic surgeon who may only look at the aesthetics of the of the um, the nose itself. I don't want to put down plastic surgeons. I I know that they're very fine general plastic surgeons who could do very fine rhinoplasty work, but I, uh, I sort of lean towards otolaryngology as the, uh, and facial plastics as the um, real uh, leaders in terms of uh, understanding all the dynamics of the nose. Can you, would you agree with that? Or I agree that uh, with certainly it has given me a much better appreciation and understanding of both the functionality and the aesthetic attributes of the nose or, you know, how, how the nose appears. Um, you know, let's face it. I I feel, um, I feel that, uh, in, within the plastic surgery, uh, realm and all of us in the core specialties, you know, oculoplastics like yourself, facial plastics, plastic surgery, and dermatology, uh, I think arguably one of the most challenging uh, uh, surgeries that we do is rhinoplasty, or at least the you know the outcomes are are a little bit uh, more unpredictable. We have this show called Botched, right. you know that's mm-hmm. that's gone gangbusters, and uh, with my uh, good friend and colleague Dr. Nassif, that's doing really well. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's because the nose is tricky. You know, it's made up of a lot of different tissues, bone, cartilage, and it's essentially a three-dimensional structure that sticks out of our face. And uh, you know, I think it's certainly my otolaryngology head and neck surgery background has certainly given me a better appreciation of the function of the nose. And it's, it's rare that I see a patient that doesn't have at least a little bit of breathing concerns. And I think that even after, you know, a rhinoplasty cosmetic surgery, it doesn't only have to look good as it has to work good, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you have to make sure that the, maybe the cosmetic maneuvers that you do to enhance the appearance are not going to impact how well the nose breathes or works because that's very important to our well being. And so, um, so I think that, yes, it's definitely affected my, uh, my development as a surgeon. And I know that a lot of the plastic surgeons, uh, I can th- think of uh, Sheen and Burkett and other pla- yes. general plastic surgeons. That are very talented. Talented and contributed to the uh, the specialty. But um, in general, I feel that yes. it, the functionality is more yes. uh, well, well addressed by the otolaryngologist. And I think the other attribute, too, that I'll just add to that, I think that uh, no matter uh, you know what specialty facial plastics or or plastic surgery, um, I think the key thing is having focus and really doing a lot of noses. 
uh, noses or, or rhinoplasty surgery is not something that you do once a month or, or a few times a year. And I think that some of the uh, really uh, uh, famous and well-respected colleagues that you mentioned from the plastic surgery field, you know, they devoted their whole life and career to the nose. You know, mm-hmm. uh, maybe they don't do liposuction at all or breast augmentation or any, really the core of their practice is is rhinoplasty. And I think that when patients search out uh, expertise or get, you know, multiple opinions to consider surgery with, that's important to look for. How many cases do you think you have to do to get really good at it? When did you start getting good at it? You weren't good from day one. Come on, let's let's be honest. So none of us were good from day one, okay? Or let's say we were okay, but we weren't great. When do you start to get great at, at rhinoplasty? How, how many cases do you think you have to do? You know, the, the magic number that yeah. I, I heard uh, in, uh, early on in my training with my professors was the number 100. Okay. And so um, that, that's, that's one thing uh, that I think is perpetuated among, uh, you know, people who teach rhinoplasty and also the students of rhinoplasty. And... Um, I think it's important, you know, some problems are more complex than others. And uh, I would say probably 40% of my practice is patients who have had surgery with another doctor but come to me to maybe help correct a problem. And um, so uh, revision surgeries are high. And uh, uh, thankfully in my training, I have had a lot of exposure to that and I feel very comfortable with it. And over the years, have gotten better at it. Yeah. Um, but um, it, it is true. Um, you do have to have a lot of your focus surgically on rhinoplasty to be very good at it. How frequent are revisions uh, necessary in the a- on average? Do you, is it like 15%? In the United States, that is exactly the number. The number that's been quoted in the literature. And so imagine if you take surgeons from... You know, Maine, from California, Seattle, Texas, and Florida, the entire country, the number is about 15%. And so uh, that's if 100 people have rhinoplasty, 15 might need a second surgery. Do you think it's because of the planning or the execution of the surgery? In other words, was there faulty planning before the procedure and they didn't take into account uh, maybe deviated septum a breathing problem, et cetera, or was it they couldn't actually execute the job, or was was there something unpredictable like the way the patient healed? I think in my, in my experience, and also um, I would say what's shared with my colleagues, the majority of situations are variability in healing. Uh, you know, again, the nose is a three-dimensional structure of cartilage of bone, of mucosa of skin. So there's a lot of different tissue types that essentially protrude from our nose. And so um, after a surgery, the nose will swell, the tissues will fill with fluid. And then as the swelling comes down at about six weeks, we start the phase of wound healing called wound contraction. And so things on both the inside and the outside can shift a little bit. Um, it, you know, it's interesting as, as I've gotten more gray hair, the number of revisions that I do myself has, has went down. And so I think definitely experience plays a role in learning how to deal with the, the, the wound healing 
uh, condition of the nose uh, is better. Is that because you're you're handling the tissue more delicately? Are you removing less tissue? Are you or you just know how far to push the envelope? I would I would say all of the above. It's a very complex operation. It's uh, uh, it's it's very it's a very elegant operation. It's like playing the piano. You know, you continue to develop and develop. Uh, the more that you do it. And so I think as you, the more experience that you get with seeing patients of different problems, the better that you become at it. When do you suggest putting in a chin implant in a patient? I know chin implants are sometimes used in conjunction with, with rhinoplasty. I think anytime um, a patient has a recessed chin or a, or a chin that is small for their face, it sometimes has what we call an illusion. It makes the nose appear larger than it naturally would. And so sometimes you want to put the face in balance and we usually draw a line from the tip of the nose that goes down on a profile view. So you go from the tip to the upper lip to the lower lip to the chin. And that should all pretty much fall on a straight line. Now, if, if the chin is recessed back from that, there are things that you can do. You can try, for example, an injectable filler to uh, just in the office. You can inject to augment the chin a little bit to show the patient how that might look with augmentation. Um, in general, I would say I probably put in less chin implants than some of my peers. Um, I think that um, uh, most of the people that see us for rhinoplasty are women. And sometimes, even though it's not the textbook definition of the chin alignment, um, I think some women look quite lovely with a smaller chin uh, and very feminine. And so I think ultimately it's an aesthetic taste and it's definitely something that you can discuss with your doctor. Um, there's two ways to do it. You can either go uh, underneath the chin through the skin and make an external incision or you can go through the mouth. Um, I prefer the external incision. Uh, it heals beautifully. There's usually no impact of a scar. And it's a little bit cleaner than going through the normal bacteria that live in our mouth. And so you want to be very cautious anytime you put in uh, any type of implant, you know, as you know, uh, for infection. But um, there are, I know that some Asian rhinoplasties, they use implants on those patients. Is that something that is... What happens with those implants? Do, don't they get infected? It's certainly near the yeah. bacteria in the nose. I'm... I'm kind of surprised they use them. yeah and we see a, we see uh quite a few problems from them you know i definitely i've seen some patients for that have had surgery in asia and they're you know they might be in new york for business and they might notice a foul smell and they'll come in the office and we'll look in and lo and behold there's a uh, an implant trying to work its way out on the inside of the nose and so definitely you have to go to someone that does them a lot and some of my close colleagues uh use nasal implants quite a bit, but there is a risk of infection and you have to really weigh that uh, with using that. I myself prefer a patient's own tissue. Sometimes when we're doing a rhinoplasty procedure and we want to maybe augment an area or make it more uh, uh, fuller, if you will, uh, we can use their own tissue. For example, a piece of cartilage from their septum and that can sometimes work a lot better. Um, the other areas where we may borrow tissue from a patient is 
their ear cartilage, you know, for example, in the, what we call the conchal bowl, it's the, uh, sort of the, the little cup right where your ear canal is, maybe where you put your AirPods, uh, that's the conchal bowl. And we can go behind the ear and make a tiny incision and just borrow a little a bit of that cartilage and it doesn't change the appearance of the ear at all. Uh, and yet sometimes we like to use rib cartilage and so we will maybe harvest a small segment of rib that we can, uh, you know, essentially make grafts and carve and help reconstruct uh, some of the more uh, extensive cases. You did touch upon augmentation of the chin with an injectable. I know that there are certain, there are many plastic surgeons and dermatologists who want to enhance the nose with injectables. What is your thoughts about liquid rhinoplasty? My thoughts are to tread very carefully. Um, the the uh, blood vessels of the nose are extensive and doing an injectable rhinoplasty looks, you know, very appealing. You know, it's no surgery. Uh, we see uh, a lot of posts on Instagram of people just getting a liquid rhinoplasty, uh, but there are big risks with it. Um, you know, it's impossible for the doctor to see the blood vessels through the skin. And if the physician accidentally gets a little bit of filler into a blood vessel, it can either cause issues with the skin. Uh, there have even been extreme cases where an inexperienced person injected filler into a nose uh, and it's, it led to death of some of the tissue of the skin, either the tip or the dorsum of the nose. Um, it's even possible for some of this filler material to go retrograde back to the blood vessels of the eye and uh, a permanent blindness has been reported. And so, um, you know, a liquid rhinoplasty is not just any procedure that, that I would get uh, just on a, on a Groupon or, you know, that you would get in a med spa, but make sure that you really talk to the physician about how much experience they have with doing these types of procedures. Do you think using a cannula or a sharp needle can impact the outcome? You know, getting into a blood vessel can happen anywhere on the face. It's more likely to happen on the nose, but certainly could, and, and tear troughs, as you know, uh, is another area that's particularly dangerous. Uh, we can use a cannula, and, and if uh, what a cannula is, is essentially it's a soft needle. In other words, you know, if you've ever had your blood drawn, the, the, the needle that's injected into the skin is sharp, so it gets through the skin. And so what we can do is maybe make a little tiny little neck with a needle, but then introduce a cannula. And so as the cannula travels underneath the skin, it doesn't cut any of the blood vessels. And so if it were to encounter one, the thought is it would just bounce, bounce off it. And that way it prevents you from having some type of vascular event because you can't actually access the vessel. Um, doing a, a filler injection under the eye is very helpful to use a cannula, but because the nose is a little bit thicker skin, it's very hard to use a cannula on a nose. Um, but uh, in other areas of the face, it's certainly helpful. Okay. And I think I might add, might add one more thing. If we, you know, I certainly do filler injections to the nose. Um, 
one thing that we can do is when we are injecting fillers, we can just sort of withdraw on the, on the syringe to make sure that we're not in a vessel before we do inject. And so there are safety measures that you can do. But I think definitely having a, a, a good working knowledge of the anatomy is certainly helpful too. I don't think anatomy alone is going to necessarily prevent a, a complication. Because as you said, you can't see under the skin. So, But I do think in, in my world of oculoplastics, I, I know that uh, I feel strongly that the cannulas are safer. Not, maybe not full, foolproof, but I feel that they are a safer um, technique to inject. I agree. How often do you have to do functional otolaryngology or rhinoplasty, so to speak, in conjunction with doing cosmetic procedures? I assume that there's cases where there's polyps, uh, sinus problems, et cetera. Uh, is that something that you encounter? Uh, and, and do you always detect it or are there surprises? For instance, last week I did a, uh, you know, a orbital fracture and I found a fungus ball in the in the in one of the maxillary sinuses do you do you also uh i'm sure you when you examine the nose you kind of see preoperatively what's happening and you can anticipate most of those cases right yeah that's a good point you know we we really like to do a full medical workup before we you know assign a patient up for surgery Um, i'm able to examine them directly and look into their nose with a headlight and really see the entire nasal cavity. Uh, we also use a tiny little endoscope that I can introduce into the nose and really get a good view of the sinuses and see what's going on. I have a very low threshold. Um, if a patient has a lot of breathing issues, if they have a history of sinusitis, I have a very low threshold that I will send patients for a, a CAT scan, a CT scan prior to doing surgery. And uh, I suppose part of that has been formed by I've done a lot of revision cases where other doctors have overlooked things. Mm-hmm. And uh, those things tend to appear on a CAT scan. And so that's helpful to do. And so, um, you know, as far, far as reconstructive nasal surgery, I do do a lot of that type of surgery but I only really do plastic surgery on the nose. If a patient does have sinus issues, uh, I'll call in one of my colleagues that I respect that do a lot of sinus surgery and we'll do the operation together. I operate with other surgeons quite frequently. And so uh, it's very common that we see, you know, functional or breathing issues in a patient that also wants a rhinoplasty. What kind of new techniques have you come up with in terms of reducing, you were talking before about um, uh, the period of swelling and then uh, I know it takes many months, maybe a year, correct, before the nose kind of settles down. But um, what have you uh, discovered lately that can shorten that uh, period of swelling and, and... and recovery. One of the things that I've been most excited about recently is a, a new drug that we can use to sort of speed up the healing time and really help the patients get back to their normal selves more quickly. You know, everybody's so busy in today's world and they want to get back to work and get back to their social life as quickly as possible. So one of the drugs that I've been so excited about is called TXA or tranexamic acid. And what it really does is it helps to eliminate bruising. 
So the blood vessels during a surgery typically get leaky. Um, part of the blood leaks out and it collects under the skin. And that's what makes a bruise. And, and rhinoplasty patients typically after a surgery will have bruising around their eyes for several days. Um, that can last even up to a couple of weeks. But with using this new additive or this new drug in the local that we use. so Local anesthetic. Local anesthetic. So after a patient goes to sleep, I will inject local anesthetic similar to your dentist would use that essentially makes it makes your nose numb. And also when you wake up, you're comfortable. You're not sensing any pain. And so it really helps a rhinoplasty surgery and for me to see what's going on as well. And so we add a little bit of this tranexamic acid uh, to, to the solution. And we found that uh, bleeding during surgery and also bruising after surgery has gone down dramatically. Wow. I think it's very helpful. And so, um, you know, recovery after rhinoplasty, uh, I would say that 95% of my patients, when they get back in the office at one week after surgery, we take out their cast, maybe take out their sutures. Um, by then, they have no bruising. They're completely ready to go back to work. Um, That's quick. That's great. And so, you know, we usually tell them that like any other injury, you know, we just had the Super Bowl last weekend. And, you know, if we have an athlete that injures his knee or, or something, it can take up to a year, six months to a year to uh, completely heal. And the nose is no different than any other body part in that regard. And so even though patients can go back to work or maybe go to a social event after a week and nobody can tell that they had surgery, they'll still know for about six months to a year. They might uh, feel still some mild numbness of the nose. They might notice that even though their breathing's better after surgery, they might still have some residual stuffiness from day to day. But all that tends to get better with time. How about scarring? Do you start, I know, underneath because you're lifting these tissues upward, um, you get some scarring uh, deep below the skin. How do you treat that? So um, I think wound care, optimal wound care is really helpful to prevent scarring. And uh, what we do a week after surgery is have the patients a couple times a day just clean their incision with some hydrogen peroxide. And then we have them apply ointment uh, on the incision. And ointment, uh, when wounds are, are, are moist, if you will, it really helps things heal rapidly. And so that, that, that healing ointment can be very helpful, and we just use Aquaphor. Um, it's rare that patients ever complain of uh, a noticeable scar after the surgery. Okay. But if they do have persistent redness in the scar, uh, I know a lot of great dermatologists that I could send them to, as I know you do as well, <laughs> um, that can, uh, we can send them to to get a little laser treatment that would help improve the scar. Okay. But it's extremely rare that they have that they need that. Do you use any uh, Kenalog or 5-FU, which is a five fluorouracil injections in in subcutaneous scars? Um, in the scar itself, for the nose, uh, it's extremely rare. I, I can't remember ever having to inject maybe a handful of times a scar under the nose with Kenalog. And these two drugs, Kenalog, for example, is is a steroid. It won't make your muscles any bigger, but it, it tends to stay locally where you inject it. And it's very helpful 
uh, for taking down swelling. Uh, 5-FU and a lot of our oculoplastics colleagues have been very uh, instrumental in bringing this drug. It really can help hypertrophic scars, I find. Um, so a lot of times I will use Kenalog to help maybe take down swelling if there's any persistent swelling in the tip or the nostrils. Uh, but in general, it's rare that we need it for the scars. And are there any new technologies besides that? I, I've heard about this oscillating rasp. It's really effective, uh, the micro air drill. It's, uh, it's really helpful in uh, precisely helping to refine the dorsum. Uh, sometimes we can make much smaller incisions if you have a hump on your nose and we can access it and it helps to finely polish uh, the hump down and uh, much more predictable outcomes for surgery. So it's been helpful. So I think that uh, we've gotten a great overview today from Dr. White and uh, he is located on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. If anyone uh, wants to visit him, uh, you know where to find him. And uh, it's really been a pleasure to have him as a guest. Uh, and I, I thank him for his time and uh, taking the time to meet with us today. Thank you so much. I think what you're doing for patients is great. I love your podcasts. I think they're very informative, so I surely appreciate being invited on your show. Thank you again. The information expressed on the Beauty Doc podcast are the opinions of myself and my guests, and they are not meant to replace a consultation with your doctor or beauty specialist. 